Well, we're talking about worldview this morning. What is a worldview? Came across a pretty good definition uh, in a book titled The Evangelical Dictionary of World Missions. The author defined worldview as a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. That was kind of a mouthful, so I'll repeat it. He said that it's a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we judge reality. I think that's interesting. It's a scheme into which we place everything we believe, and it's a scheme by which we interpret and judge reality. It is a grid that encompasses everything that we believe and through which we view everything we see in the world. Your worldview is both the sum total of your beliefs, I'm just trying to say it in a different way here, and it explains why you believe the world is a certain way, why you perceive people and events in a certain way. In another author's words, it is the framework by which we make sense of life. That's your worldview. Worldview can be particular to certain cultures, geographical locations. It could break down as far as family and individuals within the family. Now, you may be thinking that's nice, but why does that matter, right? I mean, when was the last time you sat down and uh, had a conversation with someone and said, hey, how's your worldview doing? We just don't really talk about that. It's not something that we generally engage in conversation over. And yet, if that definition is accurate, which I believe it is, our worldview really does impact everything that we think and do. Gone are the days when there was a clear shared standard of right and wrong in our society. Nowadays, more than ever, the lines are being blurred. I mean, we can't even agree on just two genders nowadays. And the lines are being blurred, particularly when it comes to what it means to be a Christian. I think that has been true for some time, but in recent years, the ambiguity has grown exponentially. Of course, the ambiguity doesn't just lie in the heart of truly born-again believers, but rather in the hearts of the unbelieving world. Look no further than the fairly significant discussions around what was coined Christian nationalism and the events surrounding the election. Now, this is not a political sermon. I do hope to talk a little bit about politics in the context of worldview. But I'll just say for the sake of uh, this morning that in, in no uncertain terms that what took place at the Capitol has, has nothing to do with authentic Christianity. It has become clear that the world and our society within the world doesn't really understand that. Many have gone so far as to hail the incident at the Capitol as an act of far-right extremist Christianity. Surely, in the view of some, that designation of far-right extremist is a bit of a redundancy. In other words, they view any form of Christianity as extreme. They would view Christianity by its very nature as dangerous, harmful, illegitimate. Christianity is falsely becoming the worst form of bigotry in our society. And it used to be true that those who were Christians in our society were respected, honored. The Christian pastor or clergyman was valued in a society. I told someone at work that I was a pastor, and he said to me, what's that? I don't don't know what that means. That honor, that respect, that identification within society is no more, and its place is disdain and suspicion. Now all people know of Christianity, evangelical Christianity at that, is that they largely support a leader with very questionable character to the degree that they stormed the Capitol, suggesting that they would take over the government by force. You know, those far-right extremist Christians, those evangelical Christians, those Christians did that. In an article by Tom Jelton from NPR titled, Militant Christian Nationalist Remains a Potent Force, The author commented that conservative, and I quote, conservative evangelical Christians have been among Donald Trump's most fervent and loyal supporters. And he says, while few have gone as far as a pastor by the name of Knappen, and this pastor he referred to earlier um, as saying basically that he was tempted to go up into his pulpit with a black rope and an AR-15 under it just to protest, But he quoted that pastor earlier. He says, while few have have gone as far as him and endorsed an armed struggle on Trump's behalf, the rhetoric of some evangelical leaders has been notably militant. And then he quotes a man by the name of Eric Metaxas. And you don't have to know who that is. Suffice it to say he doesn't speak for Christianity as a whole. But he quotes Metaxas as one of these Christian leaders, evangelical Christian leaders, as saying what's right is right, that is, 
you know, referring to the election, he says, that is so wrong. We need to do absolutely everything we can. What's going to happen is going to happen, but we need to fight to the death, to the last drop of blood, because it's worth it. The folks who understand Christianity to be the equivalent to the imagery of the riot at the Capitol, the folks who participated in the riot at the Capitol in the name of Christianity, believers who did not participate but sympathize with all of what happened, wherever you are on that spectrum, all of what has happened, all of what has transpired, all of what we do in general is driven by worldview. There is a particular framework by which we make sense of life and through which we interact with the world. I wonder where are you on that spectrum? How have you made sense of what happened surrounding the election? What framework are you using to make sense of it? Are you thinking about these things from a biblical worldview or as the rest of the world? For that matter, because worldview affects everything, how do you think about the church and membership in the church? Do you approach church membership as the world thinks about membership to any other institution like their gym? What about the government, your place in society as a whole? Pastor Chris mentioned praying for our governing authorities earlier. Whether you voted for President Biden and and Vice President Kamala Harris or not is irrelevant. We're commanded to pray for those who are ruling over us. How about the various philosophies and approaches to life these days? How do you think about those things and how are you thinking, are you thinking of them from a biblical worldview? That is what I want to explore in this short series of messages that we'll go through on developing a biblical worldview. This morning in particular, I want to start at the beginning. Where does the biblical or Christian worldview start? What is the essence of a Christian worldview? And we'll find that in Colossians chapter 3. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 4. Paul's point in this short section is simple. He has built up to this point throughout the first couple chapters, and he uses these four verses as a springboard through the end of the letter. And this is the message. Christians are those who constantly orient their minds towards Christ, who is the source of their life. Again, Christians are those who constantly orient their minds towards Christ, who is the source of their life. In this sense, the Christian worldview for us is like a GPS, right? Um, You put on a GPS when you want to get somewhere you've never been before. And the benefit of the GPS is that even if you get turned around or you start going in a different direction than you should have been going, what's the GPS going to do? It's going to correct the course for you to make sure you still get to your end goal. Throughout all of life, in every circumstance, in every relationship, until the last breath is breathed, a Christian is one who constantly orients their mind towards Christ who is the source of life. The framework by which we make sense of life and through which we interact with life is Christ himself and the life he has granted us. Now to flesh that out in our passage, Paul reminds us to seek Christ, to set our minds on Christ, with whom we've been unified, in whom we are hidden, and with whom we are glorified. And that's going to be a general outline for the passage. To seek or set our minds on Christ, with whom we've been united, in whom we are hidden, and with whom we are glorified. Let's go ahead and read that short section together, and then we'll get into it. Again, Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. In glory. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for our time together, and we don't take for granted that we can gather together. If there's anything that this past year has taught us, is not to take for granted the opportunity to gather together. We pray that you would use our time this morning around your word to sanctify us. Um, as Jesus prayed in John 17, which we'll look at next week, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth because your word is truth. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart collectively be acceptable in your sight this morning. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. By way of a brief background, this was a prison letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church in response to a report by Epaphras, who founded the church. Paul wrote this in a number of other letters from prison. This letter was to address heresy that was beginning to influence the church. And Epaphras knew that it was weighty enough that it needed an apostle's attention. 
The Gnostics, as a group of uh, individuals, had begun to creep into the church essentially with the message that Christ was not enough. It wasn't enough for believers, for people to have a full knowledge of God. In order to experience fullness, in order for themselves to be made complete or whole, they needed something more than Christ. This extra something was a mixture of a number of different philosophies of the day. Some philosophical, some ritualistic. There were some mystical, pseudo-spiritual elements, among others, mixed in. The end result is that believers were losing focus. Christians were drifting away from a dependence on and trust in the sufficiency of Christ alone. And that's why Paul begins this letter in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, with one of the most beautiful expositions of the person of Christ in all of Scripture. I'd commend you to read that later. And then he prays for them that they would know him and grow in a greater knowledge as time goes on. As Paul progresses in the letter, he makes clear that it is in knowing Christ that one has all that they need. Because in him, as Paul says in Colossians 2, 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but Paul goes on to say that also all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell. And in Christ is all the fullness of deity. Paul says, in Christ, you have it all. There's nothing more that you need. In him, you are made complete, he'll go on to say in chapter 2. Now, throughout the rest of chapter 2, Paul fleshes out what it means that we've been made complete, we've been made full in discussing various aspects of our salvation. As we get into our section, again, chapter 3, Paul uses his his discussion in chapter 2 to set up this section. Because all of these things are true, because of our salvation, seek Christ in all things. Because Christ himself is greater and there is none greater, think this way about life, your life, your new life in Christ. And as he progresses throughout the rest of the book, he'll encourage them with ways to live it out. Again, we're focusing on just these few verses this morning. Again, Christians are those who constantly orient their minds toward Christ, who is the source of their life. And we mentioned that the first point that we're going to look at is that we are to seek Christ because we have been united with him. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The if in verse 1 can be a little misleading. Typically, when we use the word if in English, we use it to express uncertainty, even possibly doubt. If it will snow, if it'll be icy, if we can get the roads cleared enough to get people out to church. But here in the original, there's a certainty. A better way to read the sense is captured in the NIV. Since then, you have been raised up with Christ. We have been raised up with Christ. That's a fact Paul is stating here. That is something that has happened to us. It is passive, meaning we didn't do it ourselves. It was done to us. God did it. God has raised us up with Christ. When he rose, when Christ rose, so did we. He was dead. Now he is alive forever. We died, now we are alive forever with him. We have been raised up with Christ. We've been united with him. This is an eternal union. We've been raised up with Christ. As Christ was raised, so are we. As Christ lives, so do we. The life that he has, we have. Paul will develop the effect of this eternal union more as he goes through the next couple of verses. And it all culminates when he says that we'll appear with Christ in glory. But listen to what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 8. Paul says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to him. Our union with Christ is an eternal union. Our salvation is an eternal salvation. It's also an effectual union. As I mentioned before, Paul spent a significant amount of time in chapter 2 fleshing out what it means that we've been made full in Christ. That being made full has everything to do with our salvation. Paul describes it in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says that in him we've been spiritually circumcised. He says the body of flesh has been removed in Christ. In other words... The body of flesh that is dead, that is offensive to God, that causes us to stumble because of its weakness, that body of flesh that craves sin, that rejects God, that desires autonomy, 
That body of flesh has been removed as if circumcised. Its enslaving, controlling power has been removed, in other words. The body of flesh is, as it were, dead in the grave, and we've been raised up with Christ by faith through God's power to new life. Paul says in Romans 6 that sin no longer has dominion over us. Paul says it another way in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 14. He says that we've been spiritually regenerated, that we've been made alive together with Christ. Again, we were spiritually dead to God. One of the best ways that I understand this is from the movie The Godfather. Just that whole, you know, uh, scene, if you guys have seen that. Um, but typically when, you know, someone in, uh, in, the, in the mob family would say that you're dead to them, they mean that even if you are physically alive, they'll have nothing to do with you. You're rejected, right? Like you can't do anything to earn their favor, to get in their good graces. They completely ignore you. And usually you end up missing some time down the road, right? Um, it's kind of that same idea, even though clearly I'm not uh, equating God with the Godfather from this movie, right? Um, but the idea is the same. Those who are outside of Christ, those who are dead in their sins, they're rejected by him. He has nothing to do with them. They can do no spiritual good. And eventually there will be death. There will be judgment. That is coming. But those who are in Christ, though they were dead in their sins, in their offenses against him, he made them alive together with Christ. When Christ rose, they were spiritually united with him in his new life. Thus, in Paul's language in chapter 2, verse 14, all of their debt of sin, the decrees and God's law which were against them, all of those things have been taken away, having been nailed to the cross. They're free. They're forgiven. They're made alive. We have been made, we have been raised up with Christ. We have been made full in Christ, meaning the power of sin and the penalty of sin have been removed. They've been taken away. We've been united with Christ. We who are Christians are now and forever in fellowship, in union with Christ, never to be separated. Our old life has died. Our new life is eternally linked, united with the life of Jesus Christ. We are united with Christ, and Paul says that it is for this reason, and others that we'll get to shortly, that we should seek him. Now, what does he mean by seek the things above or set your mind on the things that are above? The word translated there to seek is just as it sounds. A Greek dictionary defines it as to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective, to strive for, to aim at, to try to obtain. The word translated set your mind on is also as it sounds. A Greek dictionary defines this as to give careful consideration to something, set your mind on it, be intent on it. So there's an earnestness to this. There's an intentionality. There's purpose. There's drive. There's desire. There's individual responsibility taken to pursue a particular goal or objective that you want. In other words, this isn't work for work's sake. This is a goal that you desire to achieve, something you want. And for that reason, you give energy, effort, earnestness, focus. You pursue it with intentionality. You devote serious effort to realize your desire. You are giving careful consideration to that desire, being intent on achieving it. Again, this isn't working extra hours on a weekend because you feel it's your duty. This is working extra hours because extra hours means extra cash in a paycheck. Extra cash in a paycheck means you'll get to do that vacation you've been planning for all these years, right? So there's a desire. There's a goal that you have. And you're pursuing that goal with all the energy and effort you can. So what is it that we are to desire? What is it that we are to pursue with intentionality? Look back at the text. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. As Christians, our lives should be characterized by devoted, serious effort. By a constant, careful consideration of the things above. Now, the term itself, things above, seems a little vague and ambiguous, but Paul further defines these things in two ways. He defines them as things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and things that are not on the earth. 
And we can kind of see where Paul is going here. He's driving at the conclusion that we are to be a people characterized by a heavenward mindedness. We are to be a people constantly focused on, constantly pursuing, constantly giving thought to consideration of heaven, where Christ is. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is seated at the position of power in God's cosmic kingdom. Paul already identified Christ as the preeminent one, the firstborn, so to speak, of all creation in chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. That doesn't mean that he was created first. Again, the term firstborn is a title given to the son who would inherit the double portion of the father's estate. And this son would likely carry on the father's affairs after he was deceased. In that sense, Jesus has been given the title of firstborn over all of God's creation. So thinking on the things that are above where Christ is means thinking on things pertaining to Jesus' rule, his governance, his central role as firstborn over God's creation, his lordship. Thinking on these things as a first priority. Giving careful consideration to those things. Seeking those things is a part of what you desire. Seeing Christ exalted in all things is something that you desire, something that you pursue. Conversely, we're not to be seeking the things that are on the earth. By definition, these would be things that do not pertain to Christ's rule, but rather to the rule of men on earth. Earthly things, earthly pursuits. Pursuits that detract from the rule of Christ, his preeminence, his authority, his kingship, his interests, his goals, his glory. John says in 1 John, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For the things in the world are not from the Father. And those things are passing. And they're passing precisely because the Father has given all things to his Son. We'll probably get into this a little bit later on, but when we think about discouragement, doubt, depression, anxiety, all of those things that believers face at times, part of the reason why we struggle with those things is because our focus is misplaced. Because we're focusing on earthly things, lowly things, not the glorious things of Christ. When I say the word exalt or exhortation, what do you think about? I think about the jumbotron at football stadiums. You know what the jumbotron does, right? It's that really big screen. They usually have it set up in the center of the stadium. So even if you're in the cheapo seats, right, the seats because you can't really afford the $1,000 seats right down in the front, even if you're in the cheapo seats, you can still see the sweat coming off of the quarterback's face, you know, Um, it makes, it makes the picture bigger. Again, you may be sitting a, an extreme distance away, but it, it, it zooms in on the field and it makes it bigger for you. That's exalting the picture, the image. The exaltation of Christ has been the plan of God from the beginning. Paul sums it up this way in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, whether things in heaven or things on earth. In the fullness of time, God's plan was to unite all things in Christ, to sum up all things in him. Again, in Colossians chapter 1, he is the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things have been created for him, for Christ. It's been God's intention from the beginning to see that Christ is exalted above all. That is the desire of God the Father, that his Son be glorified, that every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's God's intention. That's God's desire. That should be our desire. That should be our pursuit. That should be the thing that gets us up in the morning. I like this quote from this author who's thinking about this section in our passage. He says that Jesus said that the life of the Gentiles, by which he meant the pagan nations, is characterized by what they seek. He says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? 
He says a person seeks what they are anxious about, what matters to them, what they know they need, or perhaps just what they want very much. If we had adequate self-understanding and could see our own hearts clearly, we would see how what we seek is what dominates and shapes our lives. What we seek determines what we think about, how we spend time, the decisions and choices we make. Here, then, is the power of the Christian life. Having been raised with Christ, our seeking is given a whole new direction. Seek the things that are above. Look upward. Paul spoke earlier of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Your life has a new direction and a goal, a purpose, and an end that is magnificent. Lift your eyes. Lift your heart. Look where you are headed. Seek the things above. End quote. Again, this should be our desire. This should be what we are seeking. This should be what we are pursuing. We should be striving to exalt the Lord Jesus in everything we do, to glorify him, to be that jumbotron that makes Jesus big to the world. So much of the Christian life has been relegated to just receiving Christ or accepting Christ, being a Christian, as if our faith is simply a passive event from start to finish. We've noted at the beginning that, of course, God saves us. He raises us from spiritual death to life by uniting us with the Son. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. We do nothing to earn or secure our salvation, but we do work as saved people. Paul says that in Ephesians 2.10. And part of that work involves our pursuit of Christ for his glory. We just read Philippians chapter 3. One of the things that I love about Philippians chapter 3 is the repetition that Paul makes where he's constantly repeating that he needs to pursue. He's pursuing Christ. He's seeking after Christ. He's running hard after Christ. I mean, Paul already knew Christ. In a magnificent way, God made, us, made himself known to Paul. Christ made himself known to Paul on the road to Damascus. I can't, I can't remember another person who had that kind of, just off the top of my head at least, that kind of significant revelation. And Paul said that he had additional revelation, so much so that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. So this guy who's receiving all this direct revelation from God says, I'm still pursuing hard after Jesus. I mean, if he had to do that, if that was on his heart, how much more so for us? The text makes it clear that this should be our heart attitude toward the things above. Christ's interest should be our interest. His glory as the exalted one should be on our hearts. It should be our greatest desire, our greatest pursuit. There's nothing greater to pursue. In fact, again, Paul is saying, since you have been raised, this should be true of you. In other words, if you don't desire to see Christ glorified on earth as it is in heaven, if your life is not centered around pursuing that, I'm not saying that you do it perfectly, but if that doesn't characterize your life, a desire to see Christ glorified, you should really wonder whether or not you are in the faith. That's the reality of this truth. This is where the Christian worldview starts. It starts where Christ is, and it clings to him above. It is interested in Christ. It is interested in his rule, his reign, his glory above all other things. All other considerations, all earthbound considerations, are absolutely secondary to him. Oh, what's one way that that looks like? How do you seek him? How do you show that you're setting your minds on him who, who we've been united with? One way is by thinking about this idea of identity. This is a big big issue in our society nowadays. Identity is a hot topic. Everyone's talking about and asking how you identify yourself. With whom do you identify? Do you identify as male or female or some other nebulous object? Do you identify with binary genders or non-binary? How, how, how would you like for people to refer to you? I get so sick of seeing that in emails. What's your preferred personal pronoun? I mean, it really just makes a mockery of the English language and logic. It's in vogue now to add that as a hashtag in your emails. My preferred personal pronoun is blah, blah, blah. 
politics is another big deal when it comes to identity, right? It seems like politics has taken over national conversation for a number of election cycles now. Do you identify as a Democratic Democrat or Republican? Do you identify to the left of your, uh, whatever your preferred um, party is, or to the right? You can't even tell who's to the left or to the right or who's in the center anymore. For the Christian, our first and last means of identification is Christ. Our primary means of identification is Christ. The foremost way that we are identified is by Christ. There's no Republican Christian, Democratic Christian, white Christian, black Christian, no rich Christian, poor Christian. There's no Christ plus Christian. Only Christians. We are those who have been united with Jesus Christ. We are those who live because of and in Christ. We are those who have been freed from sin in Christ. We are those who have been forgiven in Christ. We are Christians. That is all. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ. And again, in our passage, Christ is our life, Paul says. Does the world know that about you? Is that how you identify yourself? Your life is no longer your own. It is no longer yours to identify. It is no longer your own to define. It is no longer yours to shape and mold. Your life is Christ, period. When was the last time you pondered that truth? When was the last time that truth made a difference with how you interacted with the world? When was the last time that you told someone that you followed Jesus, not the hashtags of your favorite political parties, POTUS, or some other famous individual? That you know that Jesus' second coming is what the world, our nation, our city needs, not four years of whomever. When was the last time that instead of fretting over some display of lawlessness, you prayed for them, you prayed for our nation, and you took comfort in knowing that your life is united with Christ, that you're his? When was the last time you responded to temptation by proclaiming that you follow Jesus? Your life and your body are not your own to do with as you please. That he has freed you from sin. That just as he was, so also should you be in the world. That your allegiance is to him and not your appetites. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify Christ in your life. Well, again, we're talking about worldview. A biblical worldview has to do with understanding life through the framework of our new life in Christ. Paul says it this way in our text, that we are to seek him because we've been united with him. We've been freed from the power of sin. We've been forgiven of the penalty of sin. We live life now out of the abundance of life that flows through the Lord Jesus. Our passions are to be his passions. Our goals, his goals. We seek and pursue what brings glory to him, what pertains to his rule, His glory is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's look at the next point now, back in our text. Again, we seek the things that are above, set our minds on the things above. Verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We seek him because our lives are hidden in him. That's a staggering truth. First part of that verse follows right for you have died he's not saying anything new here he's just reminding us of what we've just talked about we've been raised up with christ of course if we were raised up with him certainly we must have died with him our union with christ is complete he died and was raised we died and were raised here paul is bringing us back to that same truth the staggering part is that we are now hidden with christ in god what in the world does that mean the word translated hidden there could be translated hide conceal or cover He used it earlier to indicate the hiddenness of the mystery of the Gentiles being saved in Christ along with the Jews. The idea here has to do with hiding something from view with the purpose of protecting it. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is your instinct to step in front of a child or loved one when danger is headed there. 
talk about the mama bear and the cubs, right? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. I didn't get to develop the background situation that these believers were facing, but the essential message was that you needed God plus something. I did mention that. You need Jesus plus something else to experience all the fullness of God, all the fullness of what God would have you to know. There's a deeper knowledge, a deeper experience of the divine, a better life now outside of Jesus. I mean, maybe you can have Jesus, but don't limit yourself. If you're, if you're in danger, if you do, you're in danger of missing out. In fact, you will be out of it if you do limit yourself to only Jesus. You'll be ostracized, rejected, overlooked, forgotten. You'll be looked down upon. You'll be a second-class citizen. Nobody just follows Jesus alone anymore. The world really gives us a similar message today, does it not? Again, Christianity is on the fast track to be the world's most hated religion, the most untolerated religion the least virtuous in the eyes of the world. The politically correct approach is just what was said to the Colossians. You can have your religion, just don't limit yourself to it, and you certainly shouldn't be limiting anyone else to it. There is a deeper knowledge, a greater experience of the divine, a higher virtue outside of that old stuffy religion with Jesus and God. There's more that you need to see, and if you don't pursue it, you're out. You'll be ostracized. You'll be rejected. You'll be overlooked, forgotten, second-class citizens, unworthy, rejected in society. What does the Holy Spirit through Paul say to us? Again, your life is hidden with Christ and God. No one can touch you. No one can harm you. No one can take your life. No one can shake you. This is John chapter 10. We went over John chapter 10 a number of weeks ago. Christ said that I hold you with my hand and that no one is greater than the father and the father holds you in his hand. And so no one's able to pluck you out of the father's hand either. We're doubly secure with Christ in God. This is Romans eight. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He said nothing. Ephesians one, we've been sealed until the day of redemption. First Peter one. We're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're kept. We're secure. We're hidden with Christ and God. Seek him. Set your mind on him. There's nothing greater for you to pursue. There's nothing greater that will afford that kind of security. Again, you are doubly secure, hidden with Christ. Again, we're united with him. So his life is our life. Our life is in him. We are with Christ. He is seated at the right hand of God above. He has been exalted. He is secure in the presence of his Father in heaven, and so are we in him. We are with Christ in God. Again, how much more secure can you be than that? Listen, the world can fall apart around us. The world that we often cling to can and will reject us. We can have plagues of epic proportions. We can have nuclear war breakout, more terrorist attacks, even invasions at the Capitol. You can lose your job, your home, your family. You can become deathly ill. But if you are in Christ, you belong to him. Your life is hidden in him. Do you believe that? Are you trusting in that this morning? Are you resting in that truth? Is this truth that our true life is hidden with Christ and God, the framework by which you interpret the most difficult aspects of life on this side of eternity? Do you allow your mind to focus in on that truth in those dark hours? When everyone else around you is losing their minds over these things, does your mind think of ways to make Jesus big in this situation, to exalt in him, because you know you're secure in him? I'm speaking to myself as much as to any of you. I'm a brooder. So I sit and I think and sulk and grumble when things don't go my way. Just being transparent here. It's part personality for me. I tend toward toward being melancholy. I'm introverted, so I tend to think inwardly often. But there's also pride there, a pride that says, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. I think it was Spurgeon who said that he learned to kiss the wave that cast him upon the rock of ages. In those times of distress when everyone else and everything else breaks around us, we magnify Jesus, not by always having the right thing to say, not by always knowing the right thing to do, and certainly not pretending that everything is okay, but by resting in him, 
by trusting in him, by falling on him, and remembering that our life is hidden with him and in him, eternally secure. Sometimes all we can do is just cry out, God, help me to trust you. Help me to remember that you have me and have promised never to let me go. And if that's all you can do, do that. And pray that for one another. Especially nowadays, that may be the, only, the best thing that we can do for each other, is to pray that fervently for one another. That we would rest in that truth, that we're hidden with Christ and God, and that nothing can touch us. Again, what difference does a worldview make? Worldview is a framework by which we sense, we make sense of life and through which we interact with life. Paul says our worldview starts and ends with Christ. We are to seek him in all things, set our minds on him in all things. We are to devote concentrated effort to consider him, how we might honor and magnify him in this life because our life is his life. We have been united with him, raised up to new life with him. Our identity is Christ. Paul said to live is Christ. That's us. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. We are Christians, followers of Christ. My preferred personal pronoun is Christian. We seek him and we seek to glorify him as those identified by him. We are hidden in him. God has secured our life in Christ. The worst of the world could throw at us cannot touch us because we are with Christ in God. So we seek him and not the things of the earth because those things will disappoint. We seek to exalt him because he is our keeper, our sustainer, our help. We're united in him. We're hidden in him. And third, again, we seek him because we will be glorified in him. Look back at verse 4. Seek the things above. Again, set your mind on the things above. Paul says in verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our faith is a hopeful faith. I didn't say wishful. I said hopeful. It is a faith full of hope. A Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It could go either way. It's not that kind of hope. It is a hope grounded in the promises of God as a certain kind of hope. God said it, it will happen. In this case, the hope in this last verse is that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. Again, what in the world does that mean? And why is that expressed as a reason for us to see Christ? In a recent episode of The Briefing, Dr. Al Mohler discussed the death of a British double agent who turned out to be working for the Russians Apparently, he had given more information to the Russians than any other spy, somewhere near 5,000 documents, that eventually led to the death of numerous British agents. He was caught, tried, and sentenced to prison, but later assisted by the Soviets to escape, where he fled to Russia to live out the rest of his life. This is the stuff that movies are made of. He was there lauded as a hero. What's interesting about this story is his testimony during an interview with a Russian journalist he says, I do not believe in life after death. After death, there will be nothing, no punishment for the things that you did, no rewards for the wonderful things that you did. That was his thought. That was his worldview. Clearly, in that worldview, there is no God and thus no ultimate judge and no ultimate judgment. If that is true, then anything really does go. Nothing matters. Good doesn't matter. Evil doesn't matter. You can do what you want. Now, of course, that mindset didn't mean that he didn't capitalize on the accolades that he received from the Russians, right? I'm sure he didn't turn away any rewards or say no thank you to them. But in the outworking of his worldview, specifically that there is no God, that means that there's no moral reason to be faithful to your country, no moral reason to think that being a double agent, sending secure government secrets to another government that results in the death of many whom you've probably worked with and seen in your office, really matters at all. And then when you die, you die. And you don't have to worry about it anymore. Beloved, understand that that is the worldview adopted by the secular age at large. That's the worldview adopted by so many in the world today who actively deny the existence of God, heaven and hell, or those who claim ignorance. It's much easier to justify living life any way you want if there is no ultimate consequence if there's no ultimate judgment in store, but not so for the believer. We do not look towards death and the concepts of judgment or blessing after death with disdain or indifference. We look to the end with hope. 
And that hope is firmly established as a central tenet of our faith. Again, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Why seek after Christ? Why seek to magnify Christ? Why seek to glorify him? Because the glory due to Christ in the end for his righteousness will be ours. Because Christ is our life. We've established that truth already. And Paul says when he appears, acknowledging that now Christ doesn't appear, he's not present now, we don't see him face to face now, the world doesn't see him now, but he is coming again. And when he appears, he will appear for us. And when he appears, he will appear in glory, and he will appear with glory for us. This is not your life. When you look around, this is not the sum total of your life. This is not your best life now. This is not as good as it gets. In our study on John 14, Jesus began telling the disciples of the place that he would prepare for them in the Father's house. And in, verse 17, in chapter 17, which we'll get to, he prays that the Father would safely deliver them to, in glory after his departure. We have a greater glory to look forward to in the future. It's hard to describe what the Bible means by this future glory, but I'll give just a few characteristics. Again, as in John 14 and 17, in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about us looking for a new country, a better country, a heavenly country. This is a homecoming kind of glory, in other words. We're going home. We're going to a home, a place that God has prepared for us. Paul says elsewhere that this is a greater than kind of glory. Comparisons are significant in Scripture. In Romans 8.18, he talks about the fact that the, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians 4.16. We don't lose heart, but this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. He's comparing the two. What we experience now, what we'll get then, is so much greater. The weariness, the distress, the fear, the anxiety, the dangers, the toilsome labor, even the joys that we experience will pale in comparison. This is a certain glory. It's absolutely certain. It's absolutely secure. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those whom he foreknew, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those are in the past tense on purpose. Because the glory that is coming to us is certain, it's sure. There's no doubt. This is a physical glory. We have bodies here on earth. Paul says that these bodies will not be left out of the glory to come. We read Philippians 3 earlier. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the lowly body, our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Our bodies will be glorified. Paul also talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. And he gives a number of different analogies there. He talks in one analogy, he uses the idea of a, a seed being planted. That bare grain, that seed that is planted is not what's going to result. What results is something different. It's something new. It's like a, a butterfly. A caterpillar goes into its cocoon and he comes out as something new, something different, something more glorious. And Paul says that's what our bodies are going to be. So the aches and pains and the struggles that we feel today are going to be wiped away with that future glory. Lastly, this is a present-day, life-changing kind of glory. Paul says in 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, let your hope be set on that fixed on that, the, revela the glory to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to be looking forward to that, and it's going to make a difference in the way we live our lives. We ought not to think about life and interact with this life in the same way that the world does. We must not think of death and what comes after as the rest of the world. We must live life today like we know that there's another life to which we belong, a greater life. Paul says it this way in 1 John 3. I love this section. Beloved, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, 
we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, on Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you have that hope fixed on Jesus that you will be like him? And what difference should that make in your everyday life today? Do you think about your life that way often? Does your hope for the glory of Christ purify your life daily? Do you consciously think, I'm going to share in the glory of Jesus? Do you seek to learn as much about that coming glory as possible to stoke your affections for that day? Or are you content with the life below? I wonder how much different our lives would be if we did pursue the things above, the things beyond this life. How much more would we hold our tongue instead of speaking our mind and putting someone in their place, knowing that every word we'll receive, it's just reward in the end? How much more would we turn away from that sinful temptation instead of giving in, knowing that there is a greater reward coming than the temporary passing pleasures of sin? How much more would we desire to love instead of foster hate, knowing that the love that we show today in the name of Christ will be rewarded with glory in the next? How many more souls would we desire to bring along with us as we consider the sweetness of knowing Christ and the riches of the glory that Christ is going to share for those who are his? Is your life governed by those truths, beloved? Christ is our life. And his glory is coming. We shall be like him. I like this quote. To seek heavenly things is to set our affections upon them, to love them, and to let our desires be towards them. Upon the wings of affection, the heart soars upward and is carried forth towards spiritual and divine objects. We must acquaint ourselves with them, esteem them above all other things, and lay out ourselves in preparation for the enjoyment of them. How are you doing with laying out yourself in preparation to enjoy the glory of Jesus Christ? That's going to be yours in him. Again, we're talking about developing a biblical worldview. Worldview is the framework through which we view the world and by which we interact with the world. Throughout all of life, in every circumstance, in every relationship, until the last breath is breathed, a Christian is one who constantly orients their mind toward Christ, who is the source of their life. The framework by which we make sense of life and through which we interact with life is Christ himself and the life he has granted to us. In our passage, Paul reminds us to seek Christ, to set our minds on Christ, with whom we've been united, in whom we are hidden, and with whom we will be glorified. May God grant this text to be true of us. Let us pray. Father, thank you again for your word, for your truth. Indeed, sanctify us by this truth. As we go, let the words of our heart, the thoughts of our minds and our actions Indeed, be acceptable in your sight as we set our sight and our affections on Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.